Why does the number of Ukrainian ultranationalists show high regard for a Nazi collaborator? Why is Canada donating millions of dollars to funding groups glorifying Nazi collaborators? How much support did Canadians offer Ukrainians in the Donbass region after eight years of bloodshed from the Ukraine government? Are Western media, including Canadian media, responsible for relaying misinformation of their own? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as part of its ongoing mission to separate the myths from the reality of Russia's now three-week-long military incursion in Ukraine, we speak to guests who can relay more background on the history and geopolitics of the area, allowing us to assess with greater clarity the steps for resolution ahead. In part one of our program, activist and editor Richard Saunders explains some of his research on Stepan Bandera and on the groups still following his lead. Then in part two, journalist Ava Bartlett talks about her journey to Primea and the Donbass in 2019, what she learned from them, and how her previous investigations in Gaza and Syria informs her understanding of Western press-style fake news in the current Ukraine conflict. On this week's program, a complex war, some holes in the mainstream account of justice in Ukraine. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 18th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Ishinabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Glaziev's central role in devising the new Russian and Eurasian economic financial strategy has been examined here. He saw the Western financial squeeze on Moscow coming light years before others. Quite diplomatically, Glaziev attributed the fruition of the idea to, quote, the common challenges and risks associated with the global economic showdown and restrictive measures against the EAEU states and China, unquote. Translation, as China is as much a Eurasian power as Russia, and they need to coordinate their strategies to bypass the U.S. unipolar system. The Eurasian system will be based on, quote, a new international currency, unquote, most probably with the yuan as reference, calculated as an index of the national currencies of the participating countries, as well as commodity prices. That comes from the article, Say Hello to Russian Gold and Chinese Petrowan, by Pepe Escobar, posted March 16th, originally published on The Cradle.
President Biden is in a position to make a bold diplomatic move that could bring this war to a screeching halt. Instead of pouring in weapons and piling on sanctions, we should call on President Biden to begin good faith negotiations with all concerned parties, respecting each of their security concerns. Once the world has, hopefully, pulled back from the brink, we should begin a serious international discussion about how to abolish nuclear weapons and war once and for all. How will we avoid getting into the same kind of war with China over Taiwan? How can the United States adjust to a multipolar world where it is no longer the sheriff? That comes from the article, Message to Biden, Help De-Escalation in Ukraine or Risk Nuclear War, by Jerry Condon, posted March 16th, originally published on Common Dreams. The High Court in January and now the Supreme Court in March have both refused to consider the deeply troubling circumstances in which a requesting state, in this case the United States, can give assurances regarding the treatment of a person after the conclusion of a full evidential hearing. We should recall that in January 2020, Judge Vanessa Baretzer blocked Assange's extradition to the U.S. on the grounds that he would be a high-risk for suicide due to the appalling conditions in the American penal system. In the words of Assange's partner, Stella Morris, quote, a system that allows this is a system that has lost its way, unquote. That comes from the article, UK Supreme Court denies an appeal hearing to journalist Julian Assange by Dr. Leon Tressel, posted March 17th. In this way, despite the lionizing of foreign fighters in Ukraine by the Western media, it certainly appears that their experience has been nothing short of terrifying. It also appears that many of the foreign fighters are naive to the fact that there are clear links between the foreign legion and Ukraine's neo-Nazis. In addition, the Australian government warned on March 15th that volunteers could end up being cannon fodder for Ukraine. This matches up with Matthew Robinson, a British volunteer who stressed that foreigners, quote, can be railroaded into a legion and sent to the front line very quickly. Even though you've got the best of intentions to help people, you could basically be cannon fodder, unquote. That comes from the article, Foreign Fighters Flee from Ukraine, by Paul Antonopoulos, posted March 16th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Just a reminder that neither this program nor Global Research endorses the recent actions by Russia. Ukraine nationalism has revved up lately, and understandably, but a facet of Ukraine nationalism is charged with admiration of the figure Stepan Bandera, who was in fact a colleague of Adolf Hitler. So I spoke to Richard Saunders about this tradition and more that he uncovered in his research project, Defunding the Myths and Cults of Cold War Canada. 
issue 70 of Press for Conversion magazine. Richard Saunders is also a longtime peace activist and the coordinator of the group Coalition Against the Arms Trade. Going back to the, uh, I guess, uh, later on in your volume, uh, you're talking about Stefan, Stepan Bandera. Why does he continue to hold fascination with Ukraine nationalists today? Oh, good question. Uh, he's, yeah, how could such a fascist and Nazi collaborator be so uh, revered and glorified? Uh, he's, he's, he's a central figure in the, uh, in the pantheon, you could say, of godlike mythical heroes, so-called freedom fighters who uh, collaborated with the Nazis and uh, was an outright fascist, you know, white supremacist, uh, anti-Semite, uh, anti-communist, anti-Russian, anti-Polish um, figure in their whole, in the fascist, uh, you know, in their whole ideology, the, this, this guy is central. So, uh, he was a he was a major figure uh, beginning in the 1930s. Really, um, the I think you have to understand that the the Ukrainian nationalist tradition started in the late 1920s. Uh, at that time, um, Western Ukraine uh, was part of Poland, and so their main enemies were the Polish and the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which was this movement, this organization of fascist Ukrainians who were trying to unite uh, ethno-nationalists to oppose uh, the Polish regime that was over them at the time. They uh, embraced terrorism and they uh, were quite uh, engaged in assassinations and they assassinated uh, Polish uh, politicians, for example. That was one of the things they did. And Bandera emerged later in, the, in uh, around 1940 when there was a, a major split within the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. Bandera emerged as the dominant leader, the, the leader of, the, of the, the biggest faction with this, the, the organization split. Both parts of the, uh, both factions uh, that emerged in 1940 uh, were fascist. They were, you know, anti-communist, anti-Russian, anti-Polish, anti-Jewish. Uh, both of them were equally fascist, but they had. The, I think the main difference between the two factions was was in their approach to to Nazi Germany and Bandera uh, and his uh, army and his faction of this political movement as well. They they were uh he was he sort of represented this younger group within the within the within the movement and they were a little bit more hot-headed and wanted to have an independent government an independent state um whereas the older guard of fascists were happy more happy to collaborate with nazi germany and work under the auspices of 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 being just being a part of the greater uh, greater Germany under Hitler, both of them were supportive of Hitler, and uh, but Bandera's wing, Bandera's faction, um, declared independence in 1941. So from 
and said that they that their their um, their declaration of of, an in, of independence for Ukraine, uh, led by Bandera, um, said that they would work with uh, the leadership under the leadership of Hitler and Nazi Germany. They would be happy to continue because Hitler was helping them to get rid of the Russian the Moscovite uh, overlords, and they would continue to fight alongside the Nazis against uh, the Soviet Union. Um, but they wanted to have an independent state, and that didn't last very long. <laughs> lasted about a week, and then uh, uh, so then. Uh, there's a period of about two years during the war where the relationship between Bandera and his his uh, insurgent army, this, the, his fascist army, where they had a. Uh, it's it's not clear to me exactly what their relationship was with Nazi Germany. He, Bandera and and others were were interned in in uh, prison or concentration camps but were then released or some say escaped uh, in 41 or in uh, 43. And then they pulled together a, an alliance of fascist armies from across Eastern Europe, more than a dozen different armies representing different ethno-nationalist fascist uh, movements from all the countries of Eastern Europe were brought together by Banderas uh, people, because the Ukrainian fascists were the most powerful of all Eastern European fascist movements. And so they united this network of fascist armies to help Hitler to fight against the Soviets, which, and that began in 1943, and it continued until at least the mid-50s. Uh, there were even skirmishes up until the early 60s when Banderas... Uh, guerrilla armies were still fighting World War II in Soviet Ukraine. Okay. Um, Richard, I, I know, how, how much time did you spend researching this document? Because I, I think it's uh, the, the, the thickest uh, volume and, and certainly the most uh, pristine that you've uh, put together in, uh, you know, I don't know how many years, uh, maybe 20 years or so. Uh, I mean, how, how, how much time did you spend researching it? Because I think that it's very important to be sure that what you have here is uh, actual uh, evidence of his fascism, his terrorism, as you pointed out, and, and that that's not all just Soviet misinformation or Russian fake. Oh, oh yeah, right, yeah. As soon as you bring up these things, somebody will accuse you of being uh, Russian or, or Soviet. Um, uh, I spent years, uh, I started researching Ukrainian uh, fascism uh, and have spent, most of the my time since 2015 on the subject and particularly focused on uh canadian uh ukrainian nationalist organizations uh which have their roots in um fascism and the the sources for that document the document that that um, publication took about three years for the research and the writing and the layout and the you know the layout of the print publication altogether took about almost three years. Uh, um, the sources that I used, I, I don't, you know, I don't think I used any Russian sources. I can't think of a single one. I certainly, you know, there's not, I didn't use communist sources. 
I used academic sources and I went to the Ukrainian fascist sources themselves. I spent hundreds of hours reading uh, the ABN Correspondence, which is was a publication that was around for about 30 years. The, the ABN um, was rooted from this network of Bandera uh, armies. When, when I mentioned that Bandera's army brought together all this, this alliance of Eastern European fascist armies to fight against the Soviets and fight on Hitler's side during that from 1943. That was in November, late November of 1943. So I used uh, lots of sources from these, from that public, the ABN after the war, after World War II, when that alliance of fascist armies, uh, it sort of transformed into a political alliance of these fascist movements from Eastern Europe. And they produced a publication in English and it's all of its um, documents, all of its public, uh, you know, its editions are online. And so, and they're easily accessible. So I just, I just read uh, hundreds of articles from that and looked at the cold war, all the evidence from those sources. So, I, and I also used a lot of mainstream media sources uh, to show that the mainstream corporate media in Canada has for decades uh, supported these, these organizations from across Eastern European that were formed in Canada to represent the, these emigrate communities. So I looked at Latvian, Lithuanian, Estonian, uh, Ukrainian, Polish, Czech, Slovak uh, organization, uh, the diaspora from those, uh, from those uh, regions across Eastern Europe and looked at who formed those organizations here in Canada. Who were its, who were its leaders? Who were its founders? And without exception, they were uh, either uh, high-ranking Nazi collaborators, veterans of fascist armies, um, apologists, uh, members of um, Nazi puppet regimes in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, they, this was just a really uh, ex extreme group of of people and they formed these organizations in Canada but I didn't use like yeah people are going to say oh that's all just Russian lies well okay you look at the sources I've got hundreds and hundreds of, of footnotes there and you won't find any Russian sources it's all from the mainstream media it's from academic sources like scholars uh, and from the fascist documents themselves okay well Richard uh, I am seeing uh that uh, they're the, the, the nationalists groups uh, and these heroes, they, they seem to be, I mean, uh, Roman uh, Shoykovich is, is another one. Um, actually, it says in 2007, uh, Ukraine's government declared him to be a hero of Ukraine. In 2017, the city of Lviv celebrated Shoykovich Fest and in the capital city, Kiev, streets were renamed for their anti-Soviet war heroes, Shoykovich and Bandera. And yep. yet you say that he was an assassin, terrorist, ethno-nationalist, war criminal, and cult hero in Canada. Because, I mean, they have the, the Canada's largest Ukrainian center, the Roman Shoykovich Ukrainian Youth Unity Complex in Edmonton, named yep. after the nationalist war hero. 
uh, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Again, I mean, could you... Uh, just... It's hard to believe, but it, it, and another interesting thing that I learned just not that long ago from uh, uh, Per Rudling, who you've had on your show, uh, he's a, a Swedish-American scholar who studied in Edmonton under um, uh, Jean-Paul uh, Himka, who is Freeland's uh, uncle, because Himka married uh, the daughter, one of the daughters of Michael Chomiak, who was the chief uh, news propagandist for the Nazis uh, throughout World War II. Anyway, um, so what he, he revealed not that long ago is he found that, um, that the, um, the, that Shukovich Youth Complex Center in, in Edmonton, uh, which is probably the largest uh, nationalist Ukrainian cultural center in Canada. Um, they have a statue there, a big larger than life bronze bust of Shukovich and, uh, you know, the kids wearing their uniforms that are part of this Bandera cult movement in Canada. They wear military style uniforms because it's like a, it's like a boy scout uh, uh, thing. So it's similar to our scouts. They're very modeled after a military thing uh, in, a, in a military hierarchy and whatnot. And they wear uniforms anyway. So they wear um, uniforms and they pose in front of this bronze statue to Shukovich outside of this center. And somebody in uh, it's been spray painted twice in 2019 and in 2021, someone spray painted Nazi scum. And then in 2021, they, they spray painted actual Nazi onto the monument. Um, and this guy did wear a German uniform from 39 to 43. And uh, he was uh, a terrorist and a war criminal and a leader of, the, uh, of a battalion that marched into uh, Ukraine in 1941 during Operation Barbarossa, which was still the largest military invasion of all time. Uh, anyway, so, um, and that's when they marched in and then they declared their independence. But so he, there's a statue to him and uh, it's been defaced a couple of times. So the Canadian government gave $36,000 to the Roman Shukovich Youth Unity Complex uh, just uh, a couple of years ago to, or I don't know if it was in response to the 2019 spray painting or probably the 2021 spray painting. Anyway, they gave $36,000 to pay for, I'll uh, quote it, for the installation of a closed circuit television system and intrusion system components in order to, again, here's another quote, to increase community safety by providing funding for enhancement of security infrastructure to a community with a demonstrated history of being victimized by hate motivated crime. So having a statue to a Nazi uh, military, uh, a fascist, a leader of a fascist army who marched in Nazi uniform in, a, in the invasion of one of Canada's uh, allies in the war, the Soviet Union, um, that's not a, a hate crime to have a statue of a Nazi uh, uh, war criminal, but it's a hate crime to write actual Nazi on the statue. Uh, 
And the government paid for the for a camera and security system to ensure that that uh, this wouldn't happen again. And that they talk about this community of ethno-nationalist fascists as having a, uh, a demonstrated history of being victimized by hate-motivated crime. Yeah, well, I mean, these, <laughs> you have these, uh, I mean, the statue of, of Roman Shoikovich here, but yet we're you know, so sensitive to past crimes that we want to take down statues of John May McDonald. So it's yeah. weird, uh, con uh, but I, I'm running a little out of time, but I wonder if you could just talk about, uh, you know, following up on how uh, Canadian taxpayer money is being used to uh, to devote to these groups to build uh, statues and a museum and, and other sorts of things like that. Uh, that's with Canadian taxpayer dollars. If you're a, you know, a, maybe a somebody, a daughter or a son of a, or a grandson of someone who, you know, a, a Holocaust survivor, or maybe wasn't, you know, that you have to pay money for these groups that are in some sense uh, supporting it. So, uh, well, you have a petition out there. So could you just, yeah, just yeah the petition, yeah, the petition well, is, it's called stop Canadian government funding of groups that glorify Nazi collaborators. And uh, just, I could read the first couple sentences, the basic text of the petition. We call on the Canadian government to stop giving financial support to East European ethno-nationalist associations that whitewash their forebears' complicity in the Holocaust and other crimes against humanity. As taxpayers, we oppose our government's continued funding to monuments, publications, events, and meeting centres that are used by these Canadian groups to glorify the memory of their Nazi collaborating founders, leaders, activists, and war heroes. So it's addressed to Trudeau and to Christia Freeland. Uh, we're just past 1,500 signatures and we're aiming to get 1,945 signatures, 1945 being, I think, a good target number because we're basically trying to reachieve 1945 when we thought Nazism uh, was defeated during in the, by the Second World War. Well, it doesn't appear to have actually been defeated and it's on the rise uh, again. Uh, and uh, these people have more power and clout and are closer to government circles and the halls of power here in Canada than they ever have been before. Uh, thanks in large part to people like Christia Freeland, but she's just one person. Uh, it's these various different organizations like the uh, Ukrainian Canadian Congress that was created by the Canadian government in 1940 in order to bring together the right wing uh, Ukrainian nationalists and uh, this the UCC which is in the in the media every single day now promoting escalation of the of the war calling for a no fly zone over Ukraine and calling for more weapons and more training and, and more military equipment to go to Ukraine through NATO to, you know, all these things that this UCC, Ukrainian Canadian Congress is doing. This, it's important, but no, the media never tells you that this umbrella organization actually represents veterans associations from Ukraine who are fascists. They represent the veterans associations of veterans who came to Canada from Ukraine after the Second World War who were who were uh, 
veterans of the Waffen SS Galicia, the Waffen uh, SS, you know, funded, armed, trained, equipped, and under the leadership of the Nazis, as well as Bandera's uh, fascist army, the uh, Ukrainian insurgent army. So veterans of those thousands of veterans came to Canada and they formed organizations and those organizations joined the umbrella organization created by the Canadian government called the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, which is in the news, in the media every single day now promoting you know, the escalation of the war in, in Ukraine. And uh, they never tell, the media never tells us, oh, you know, this organization is is riddled with with uh, with people who th- uh, who glorify Nazi Nazi collaborators as if they were great free- freedom fighters. Okay, well, I think we have to leave it there, but uh, I want to thank you for uh, introducing your, your it's a press for conversion issue number 70, Defending the Myths and Cults of Cold War Canada. Um, thank you for again for uh, your time. Well, thank you, Michael. And uh, people can, if they go to our website, they can sign the petition there and uh, they can read the magazine, the publication online. It's all available for free for anybody who wants to access all this detailed information that I put together. Oh, Thanks we- for letting me uh, share with you this, some of this, this information, which is part of the puzzle that I think we need to consider when we're trying to understand what's going on in Ukraine right now. We've been speaking with Richard Sanders, the coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade, and uh, also publisher of Press for Conversion magazine. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are delighted right now to feature a a remarkable person and and friend, Eva Bartlett, back on the show. Eva Bartlett is a Canadian, or I guess, yeah, well, was an independent journalist and activist. She spent years on the ground covering conflict zones in the Middle East, especially in Syria and occupied Palestine, where she lived for nearly four years. She's a recipient of the 2017 International Journalism Award for International Reporting, granted by the Mexican Journalists Press Club, uh, was the first recipient of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism, and was shortlisted in 2017 for the Martha Geller, Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism. She was, in, she was in Russia and Ukraine in 2019, where she visited at, and interviewed Kirill Vyshinsky. Uh, she visited uh, Crimea and she visited Donetsk. Um, we thought we'd bring her onto the show to see if the insights she heard are um, about those regions can contribute to the wider discussion about Ukraine as it is being targeted under the recent Russian intervention. And uh, she's returned to Russia apparently to stay. Uh, she's been there for a couple of years now. And uh, maybe she's uh, looking forward to uh, putting together another report. Um, welcome, Eva, to the show. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me back on. Okay. Uh, now, first of all, since you're in Russia, I, I have uh, some interesting information. Uh, Amnesty International had sent out, a, uh, uh, I guess, one of their circulars. And it said that uh, people around the world, I'll just read from it, people around the world have been exercising their human right to peaceful assembly protesting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including people in Russia. 
In response, Russian authorities have unleashed a nationwide crackdown on independent journalism, anti-war protests, and dissenting voices following Russia's military's, Russian military's inter invasion of Ukraine. Facebook and Twitter are banned. 150 plus journalists have fled the country. 13,800 plus people have been arbitrarily arrested at anti-war rallies. New Russian legislation punishes independent reporting on the war with up to 15 years. The term war and calls for peace are effectively banned. However, despite these restrictions and a ferocious police response, Russia's anti-war movement continues to fill the streets with rallies to demand an end to the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, they quote Marie Struthers, Amnesty International's director for Eastern Europe and Central Asia. These people should be celebrated for daring to raise their voices against the inter injustice of the invasion. Okay, so that's what Amnesty International said. Uh, is this description by Amnesty International consistent with what you are witnessing in, in Moscow at the moment? Is the anti-war movement filling the streets? Do you feel any pressure on your own journalism? What's your take? Um, well, okay, so I'm not in the heart of Moscow, but I was in the city um, last week, and I was actually walking in very central Moscow. Um, I didn't see any protests. That doesn't mean they're not occurring. Um, but what I would like to note is, uh, no, no, I don't feel any threat to my own journalism. And you can still find uh, journalists, uh, for example, Riley Wagaman is blogging on his Substack at Edward uh, Slavsquat, and he's incredibly critical, critical, pardon me, of the Russian government. Um, so you can find him, you can find, uh, I'm pretty sure the Moscow Times, which is a very critical uh, opposition site, is still functioning. Um, as for the, you know, the claim of X number of journalists have fled the country, I cannot verify that. Uh, if they've fled the country, that could also be of their own volition. I know a number of journalists did pro uh, uh, quit, uh, for example, from RT in protest, um, and that's their choice. But um, I think some things that are notable are, uh, in my experience uh, in, with protest in Russia, um, I've, I've, I've attended a few protests, not, not in support, but as uh, an observer, because when I, for example, last year, there were protests in support of Navalny, who was a Western-backed uh, opposition figure, um, who really doesn't have a lot of popularity in Russia. But in any case, there were protests, and the claims that were going around in the corporate media were that the Russian police were cracking down brutally. And I went to one of the key protests and stayed from the beginning, before the beginning, to after the end. And I did not see police brutality. Later, when I was looking at footage from the protest, I, I did see one clip um, published by RT showing police using batons on protesters. I slowed that footage down. And before the batons went flying, I saw protesters running at the police. One was headbutting police. The other, another was kicking at the police. So the police responded. Whether or not we like that, the police will respond to that type of um, instigation. And I might add that, of course, were these protesters in France, they would be facing tear gas and potentially losing eyes as Yellow Vest protesters have in their protest over the years. Uh, but one other thing to note, um, and, and when I went to the, the protest to observe like the, the mood about you know, this pro-Navalny protest, Frankly, they seemed like they didn't really know what they're there for. They seemed like uh, it was largely youths from what I could see. It seemed like they were there maybe from other incentives. I know that when I was here in 2019, there were protests um, or something to do with the Moscow mayor and some election that was happening at the time. And again, I observed at that time, uh, I did not see police brutality. Uh, there was a sanctioned protest and there was an unsanctioned protest. Just like in Canada, we have to have permits to protest. 
And at the sanctioned protest, I saw absolutely no police brutality. At the unsanctioned protest, I saw police literally hurting people away, arresting them, okay, hurting them away like they were like they had their arm around their younger sibling. Um, I did see some being carried away and presumably they were re resisting arrest, but I did not see the types of police brutality that we're so familiar with in, in the West. I think it's worth noting Amnesty International is not an independent human rights group. It takes money from George Soros. It takes money from the US State Department. It has, um, last time I checked, they're, they're one of their key people was uh, kind of like in a revolving door. She had worked at the US State Department. Now she was the head of uh, Amnesty Executive Director. Though I'm, I'm looking at something that I published years ago. I don't know whether she still is the head of uh, the Executive Director, but the point being, it is not a neutral impartial body. It's a body that does the bidding of the West um, in whatever, you know, whatever the particular need is, whether it's to vilify Russia, to vilify Syria, to whitewash Israel, um, Etc. So that that's my take on 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 those claims. Okay. Well, it's it's very interesting, and certainly it sounds like yeah, they'll they they won't record the initial uh, attacks. They'll always get the response, and that's like oh, how horrible. <laughs> but uh, I, I want you to let, let's focus in a, a little bit on on the Ukraine. I mean, first of all, uh, Crimea, which uh, had uh, mm -hmm. um, had signed had basically agreed to. Uh, a referendum to to join up with Russia again. Of course, some people are saying that well, they they the the, the soldiers were, you know, ready to to uh, shoot them, and uh, that there was uh, all this fear and and so on and so forth. Uh, could you tell me what from your travels in Ukraine? I think you were there about a week or so. Could could you talk about uh, what you who you talked to and um, what you heard about? Uh, the the referendum and uh, the and life since then. Okay, well, I, I should just be, to be clear, um, I was in Kiev, Ukraine, in 2019 to interview the lawyer of Kirill Vashinsky, the uh, journalist and editor who you mentioned in your introduction. And if I may, it is uh, it is worthy uh, to remember his case because he was an editor that was imprisoned by Ukrainian authorities simply for the quote unquote crime of having published 14 or 15 uh, opinion articles, none of which were written by himself. He published these in 2014, these articles of varying persuasions, both pro what was happening in Kiev and anti what was happening in Kiev. So uh, a, a variety of opinions. Uh, they were not written by him. And um, in any case, he was persecuted for, for publishing these opinion articles, which had the disclaimer at the bottom that these are opinion articles and not written by him. Uh, he was persecuted four years after the fact. He was held for like 400 days in Ukrainian prison, which was uh, Saying it was substandard conditions is an understatement. It's it's horrific conditions in Ukrainian prisons, uh, and and he was um, he was held without trial. You know, so and 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 when I interviewed him, I interviewed his lawyer first in Kiev, and then later when I was in in Russia, in uh, August September 2019, uh, Vyshinsky had been released in an exchange, although he was again never charged of any criminal wrongdoing. He was just held without trial. And uh, when I interviewed him, he, to be, you know, to his credit, he's a very humble man and he downplayed his horrific uh, detention and imprisonment. But he did tell me about other journalists he knew who had been tortured, who had been executed by Ukrainian forces. Now, these are the same forces that we're told are democratic, 
these are the, these are the same forces that people uh, maybe out of goodwill are, are changing their profile pics to the Ukrainian flags for uh, perhaps not understanding the real persecution that journalists and civilians face in Ukraine. And that's not even talking about the Donbass, which Ukraine has been bombing for eight years. This is talking about normal civilians within Ukraine proper. But that said, um, with regards to Crimea, um, I did go there on my own expense, of course, as always I do in my journalistic travels. Um, I went there for, I think it was just like 10 days. I went with a friend, Vlad, a Russian American who could uh, translate for me because I don't speak Russian yet. Um, and we traveled around and so he was translating for me and you know I was having really interesting encounters and even traveling with him was interesting because he had been in Crimea in 2014. Uh, I want to say it would have been right after the referendum. And so his observations five years later were like, he was constantly saying, I can't believe how much things have improved here. The infrastructure is so much better than when I was here. The simple Simferopol airport when I came in 2014 was a disaster. Now it's a first class, like a world class airport. But that aside, like we, um, the people that we encountered uh, time and time again, they were saying, I mean, they didn't, first of all, they rejected this notion that that anybody was forced to, uh, to vote to join Russia at force or anything like that. And most of them that I spoke with said we returned to Russia, making the point that historically Crimea has always been a part of Russia. Um, but one really interesting thing when I was in uh, Simferopol, which is, um, I believe it's the capital, I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it's the capital of Crimea. It's been a little bit since I've thought about that, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like the terminology, but I think that's what it would be called. Uh, I met uh, the chair of the Ukrainian community of Crimea, a woman named uh, Anastasia Grichina. And uh, it was very interesting talking with her because she emphasized that she worked, uh, fought very hard for this, this referendum to happen. Now, this is a Ukrainian woman representing Ukrainians in Crimea, and she wanted the referendum and she wanted to rejoin uh, Russia. So that was quite, and it's in my article that was published on Mint Press News, um, which I can send you the link to, and I would highly recommend people read. And she also emphasized one of the talking points in Western media is that the Tatars are repressed in Crimea. And she's like, you know what? It's one of the three state languages, the three uh, official, sorry, languages in Crimea, Russian, Ukrainian, and Tatar. Uh, so, I mean, she had a lot to say. And actually the day that I met with her, she uh, was in a bit of a rush because she was going off to a Ukrainian festival that was being held that day. So I mentioned these things because I know the corporate media has, has portrayed Crimea as a place where like non-Russians are persecuted. And that's not what I was hearing from people I met. Um, and otherwise it was like, it was just really interesting to travel around Crimea again with Vlad, constantly commenting on the improvement of the infrastructure. A couple I rented a, 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 a small apartment from uh, for a few days. They were also saying, yeah, like since, since Russia, uh, since we rejoined Russia, not only an improvement of the road infrastructure, but like uh, of transit, of um, like transportation, I mean, like the street, the trolley cars, buses, uh, opening of kindergartens, something they said wasn't happening when they lived under Ukraine. And uh, a man I interviewed also in Simferopol, Yuri Gempel, I'm gonna have to just scroll down to see what his official title is. Um, he's a member of parliament and the chairman of the Standard Commission on Inter-Ethnic Relations of the Parliament of Crimea. And he basically flat out said, when we were living under Ukraine, Crimea was robbed. 
Uh, so basically nothing improved during the 23 years Crimea was a part of Ukraine. And then as soon as Russia, they rejoined Russia, everything improved. So, I mean, that sounds like an exaggeration, but that's what I was being told. Um, and I don't see any reason that these people have to lie to some random independent journalist that was meeting with them. They well, didn't Russians even know that I- Guns to their heads while they were voting or anything like that, right? No, absolutely not. In fact, one woman I talked with uh, who went by Tata, um, nicknamed Tata, she's actually a Russian citizen that moved to Crimea in, I think, 2012. And uh, her husband was in the US at the time of the referendum. And she was like, uh, she made a couple of interesting points. She's like, she went and tried to sign up to vote and she was told, no, you can't vote because you're, you're Russian, you're not Crimean. Although Crimeans are ethnically Russian, but you know what I mean? She wasn't originally from Crimea, but she also said when her husband, um, around the time of the referendum, when there was all this hysteric reporting claiming, you know, Russian troops in the streets and invasion and all that stuff, her husband was in the States um, and he actually like contacted her alarmed and worried about her and she's like this is not happening <laughs> what you're seeing is fiction and I mean we have to like if we think about the way western media has knowingly and deliberately lied about not just Syria but Libya and Iraq it shouldn't be surprising that they would just manufacture complete nonsense over the issue of Crimea mm, wow okay um you also went to Donetsk uh, as uh, you know, later on, and uh, you know, this is where they're saying that I mean, there were something like fourteen thousand people had died over the last eight years, and uh, it's something that the, the, well, the press talks about. You know, the Russian agents there, and then I wonder if you could just you know clear up for the record what uh, what's going on and and how people were responding and, and what you saw while you were in that uh, part of uh, Ukraine. Okay, yeah, so I um, I went there again independently again on my own dime and um, <clears throat> I uh, ended up going to uh, a city north of Donetsk called Gorlovka. And Gorlovka has been very hard hit over the years, uh, particularly in, I wanna say it was 2014 where like even the city center was heavily bombed and tens of people were killed. Um, but I, I also went to smaller villages and smaller communities uh, that were 400, 500, 600 meters from the Ukrainian forces. And these communities, um, the houses were either destroyed, partially destroyed, or you know, damaged in ways that made them unlivable or uncomfortable to live in. For example, like holes in the wall, holes in the roof, or entire like roofs missing. Um, most of the people I met were elderly. They had nowhere to go because uh, I did ask them, you know, why do you stay? And they're like, well, where can we go? Um, most of them didn't have anyone to go to. Some didn't want to leave because it's their home. They've lived there, you know, their families have lived there for generations. But uh, the areas that I went to, Zaitsevo, an area called Mine 67, a former mine. Well, uh, there's a lot of mining in, in that region, but this was a former mining area and another area called Krutaya Balka. Uh, all the people that I spoke with had been um, terrorized by Ukrainian shelling for eight years. And uh, you know, there's parallels, Michael, you mentioned that I lived in Gaza, well, in Palestine for nearly four years, three of those in Gaza. And there are parallels between what Palestinians endure under Israeli shelling. And I'm not talking about when Israel wages a full-on massacre and war against the people of Gaza, 
but just on a random day, the media doesn't cover it. But, you know, having lived there, I'm very well aware that on any random day, Israel can bomb. And, uh, you know, the, the people, the civilians are being terrorized and, and media doesn't report on it. And that's the same situation um, in, uh, in the Donbass. Of course, they're not using the F-16s that the Israelis use or the Apaches, but they are using heavy and prohibited weapons, weapons that are prohibited under the Minsk agreements that were signed in 2014 and 2015. Um, and they've been, the Ukrainian forces have been bombing civilian areas, including again with these prohibited weapons, uh, including as I learned yesterday when I interviewed a, a Russian military expert based in the US, um, including using white phosphorus, which Israel has also done to the Palestinians of Gaza, which I documented. Uh, and so these people are living under the heavy shelling and machine gun firing and sniping of the Ukrainian forces and have been living that for the past eight years. And again, um, for people who uh, out of some sort of benevolence and empathy for Ukraine, because Russia is waging a military operation there, have changed their profile pics to the Ukrainian flag. Where were you the past eight years when these 14,000 people were killed? You know, because it's, it's been a, a systematic targeting of civilian areas, of schools as well. You know, all the outrage we're seeing uh, with these fabricated stories in media, just like we, we had fabricated stories in media reporting on Syria, um, real incidents have occurred in the Donbass where the Ukrainian forces have been targeting civilian infrastructure and schools, et cetera, to the so silence of the Western media. Are you saying, okay, are, do they, they, they bomb day and night, like all the time uh, and, and like, I mean, we hear so much about the, uh, you know, I, I heard uh, Elizabeth May and uh, the Green Party person talking about how the Ukrainians are being, seeing all their children dying in these attacks by Russia. Well, I mean, is there, is it really the same as, uh, as Palestine? I mean, is there any indifference in terms of who gets bombed? You know what? I just want to say Elizabeth May was equally awful in her take on Syria. Um, I wrote an article about just how for somebody with a legal background, she has it wrong on Syria and she has it wrong on Ukraine. Uh, as for day and night, what I was told when I was there uh, was that there was the risk that they would bomb during the day. It does happen. The bombing was heavier at night uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, there's a body, I forget what the acronym stands for, OSCE. It's a European monitoring body that's supposed to monitor ceasefire violations. And what I was told, uh, both by people that lived in the areas, the affected and bombed areas that I visited. By the way, there was a house smoldering when I was visiting one of these communities. It had been bombed like two days prior. Uh, and burned out and gutted. Uh, what I was told is that the OSCE leaves at night because at, at, in the dark, I guess they, you know, they, they're not mandated to, uh, they can't observe maybe because it's dark or whatever. And that that's when Ukraine really ramps up the bombing. Uh, and I was told this by multiple people, civilians and uh, the journalists that accompanied me and the head of one of the villages I went to, this wonderful, uh, courageous woman, Irina Deacon, who basically stressed that none of the ceasefire agreements reached that village site, Sevo. And um, again, I asked her to describe a typical day. And she's like, well, most days people go to work during the day and then around five or 6 p.m. the bombing starts. And that's around the time that it gets dark or at least when I was there uh, and, and when the OSC observers leave. And, uh, and again, they are using prohibited uh, weapons. I'm not a weapons expert, but they're using um, 
force like the the size of the mortars uh, are are larger than they're permitted to use under this uh, Minsk agreement uh, but they do bomb during the day as well I mean the city Gorlovka that I talked about it was bombed during the day like the public parks bus stops very central areas were bombed uh, in broad daylight and the bombing that was in again I think it was 2014 broad daylight um, so, I mean, I was lucky that when I was there, uh, there was not bombing in the regions that I visited during the daytime, but uh, that was a matter of luck. Yeah. Well, if I may, maybe you have to go back and, and check yourself, but uh, their perspective on this might be a little bit different from other Ukrainians that we hear about in the news all the time, complaining about how the Russians are uh, attacking children and attacking civilians. Uh, what would you say? Well, I would say, um, again, uh, from what I what I understand, of course, nobody, none of us, you know, observing from outside knows what's really happening on the ground. And I'm not going to pretend I do. But from all the different reporting I've seen, the analysts I follow, particularly the Duran guys have been a, doing a great job of providing really solid, non-hysteric, uh, really um, insightful analysis. Uh, but also Scott Ritter, you know, he's a former U.S. Army, uh, I forget his rank, uh, also former weapons inspector. And um, I want to say there was one other source. Anyway, they've all been making the point that the way Russia is um, in conducting its military operation in Ukraine is actually very comparatively slow and strategic in that it's not doing what the U.S. and Israel and Saudi Arabia do so well, which is to full out carpet bomb and flatten entire areas. Uh, regardless of how many civilian casualties there are, or even with the intent of creating as many civilian casualties as possible, Russia's not doing that. And I think it was the Duran guys that also pointed out that, uh, whereas, again, the US and Israel will intent intentionally target civilian infrastructure, take out uh, media buildings, as we saw uh, Israel to when it um, last bombarded Gaza, deliberately destroying media buildings. Um, Russia has not been doing this. And so uh, if you're looking at mainstream reports, yes, you'll see claims of Russia killing civilians. And of course, there will be civilian casualties. Uh, but if you're looking at other sources, you'll see Russia is opening humanitarian corridors. And guess who is preventing civilians from leaving? The very benevolent forces that people are changing their profile pictures to be in solidarity with. The Ukrainian forces, the neo-Nazi forces, they're using civilians as human shields and preventing them from leaving along these humanitarian corridors, just like the terrorists in Syria did. And I can speak from experience in uh, 2016, November 2016, I was on a humanitarian corridor to the north of Aleppo and uh, it was shelled twice when I was standing on it and another five or six times afterwards. Uh, so this is a tactic that the that the terrorists in Syria first employed and now the, uh, the, the forces in Ukraine are employing to prevent civilians from leaving, to use them as human shields. Mm, yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, certainly they're talking about that right now is indicting Russia saying they're, they tout humanitarian corridors in Ukraine as evidence it does not wish to rage war on Ukraine's civilian population, but experts familiar with its use of such corridors in Syria and those observing their implementation today in Ukraine say that Moscow is only using it as a deceitful accessory with the aim of gaining ground in its war against Ukraine. Um, I guess I only have a few more minutes left, but I mean, could you talk about other aspects of the, uh, uh, you know, e examples of, uh, you know, where uh, you, you see 
uh, you know, say a, the Russian attack on a children's hospital or, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the use of uh, Bellingcat as a, a way of showing, hey, they're, 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 they're trying to build these uh, bio labs, but they're trying to say, say no, actually, these are U.S. Uh, bio labs and uh, uh, stuff like that. Just examples of why we should be a little bit skeptical of some of the media we are seeing in in West in the Western press with regard to uh, Russian uh, disasters. Well, so you mentioned a hospital being bombed, and that is one trope that's being um, shared in on on social media, and I, I presume uh, in in Western corporate media. Uh, so there's one apparently um, hospital, maternity hospital, um, uh, one of the telegram sites that debunked that pointed out that the hospital had been empty for several days. And just like um, like Syrian quote unquote rebels, they had been occupied by Nazis from the Azov battalion who had, who basically had militarized the hospital. Now, I, I said I made a reference to Syria and um, in uh in Aleppo, there was the Children's and Eye Hospital uh, that um, during 2016, uh, corporate media were saying, you know, the same type of thing that we're hearing now. But what they didn't report, um, they maybe they didn't know at the time, but they did, certainly didn't follow up report as I did and as my colleague Vanessa Bailey did, was that those hospitals were gutted, turned into terrorist headquarters. And uh, beneath those hospitals, they had uh, uh, improvised prisons and solitary confinement cells used to torture civilians. Uh, so I don't know whether that's occurring in Ukraine. I would not be surprised because the modus operandi seems to be the same in terms of the brutality and torture of these neo-Nazi brigades um, of civilians and of people they capture and the same uh, same sort of um, brutality of the terrorists in Syria. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're also um, if I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. It's kind of distracting. If they're also, uh, if they also have these like uh, uh, prisons uh, underground, they're they're doing the same thing that terrorists in Syria did, in that they go into a civilian area with their heavy weaponry, uh, so they're embedding amongst civilians. But again, you're not going to see that on on the Western corporate media because they're they're not there to inform you, folks. They're not there to inform you. They're there to program you. That's that's. I can say from my, my experience in Syria, which I've been going to since 2014, in the height of the terrorism, in the height of the propaganda, I can say 100% the media is not there to be objective and report. It's there to spin you a tale, to sell you something which usually is a no-fly zone and an excuse to invade a country, uh, in the case of Syria, in the case of Ukraine, to stop Russia's operation. Um, to denazify and demilitarize uh, Ukraine. And, and by the way, I would highly encourage people to read an article by criminal uh, international criminal lawyer Christopher Black talking about the legality of this. Okay. Eva Bartlett, it's been good having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. We've been joined by award-winning journalist Eva Bartlett. She joined us from Moscow. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. 
To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.